Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Here's the 28th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that may be quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. Today is especially personal as my guest and I have been on a mutual growth journey. We met back in 2015. He was assigned as my alumni development officer for my beloved alma mater, Cornell. I had dropped a bit from the radar and literally, thanks to him, I re-engaged with the university in a way that's been very meaningful to me. His relationship building and relationship intuition is exceptional. And a big part of our connection is both being Asian. That said, only very recently did I find out that his upbringing was anything but Asian, and he's a man on the move. Literally, he just closed a brilliant, more than decade-long chapter with Cornell. I'm so proud that the newest Associate Dean for Development in the Office of the Vice Provost and Dean of Research at Stanford University, Christopher Haight, is joining us today. Christopher, welcome to Our Voices. Hi, Molly. It's so, so great to be here and, and appreciate you having me on. Well, I appreciate you and I know you're very busy. So carving up time to be on the show. Um, I know uh, there's lots as you're heading west. This timing, I have to say, just feels so breakthrough for you professionally. So really, my biggest congratulations for this uh, latest opportunity. Thank you. And I, I think you're right. It has felt like a, a culmination of so many things of both career and professional, but also personal growth over the past decade plus with Cornell. I, I can't believe uh, it was over 10 years ago. I was 24 and walked into an office in Ithaca and started and um, have just gotten it, uh, to go on such a great journey with the university, uh, just like so many of its alumni did as students. And um, so, yeah, I think it's such a great time to reflect on some of these things. Yeah, it's, it's a real win. You know, um, I've been thinking too, and, and I know we had a little celebration a few weeks back. While over the years, I think you have gotten a very great sense of me, my family, what motivates me. Only recently have I gotten a glimpse into how you grew up. And it's a story that has so much to help listeners consider how their own attitudes have been shaped and how perhaps they could look at the others and themselves in a new light. So I'm really grateful, Christopher. Go ahead, just share your journey with us. Well, thanks, Molly. And um, again, it, it's it's just such the right time to have this conversation because I think if you asked me to share about myself and parts of my identity and what have contributed to you know me being me today, uh, I, the answers would have been so different, and I think not maybe as rich as um, you know I, I've come to appreciate different aspects. So um, you know the experience, the hardships, the wins, all the great stuff that makes us who we are. Um, you know, I, I'm in a good place, I think, to perhaps share and maybe be helpful for others who might be listening. 
Um, but I think three, three big components of who I am, and Molly uh, alluded to this a little bit about, you know, what my upbringing looked like and what you might not uh, infer right away uh, just by looking at me or even by knowing me professionally or even personally some, in some ways. Um, but I am an adopted gay Asian man. And those are three aspects that I've really come to appreciate and let inform, again, how I think and how I approach work and relationships and life and all kinds of decisions. But I had to go through um, you know, a pretty long process to really not just understand each of those elements, but actually proactively em embrace them and, and view them as strengths um, rather than things to deal with. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I wanted, so in sharing my story, I figured it's helpful to perhaps go through, how, you know, where I started with each of those elements and then um, where I've come and, and where I find myself today a bit. Um, but the first piece, you know, being adopted, uh, this was perhaps the most fundamental piece and the piece um, I really I actually knew about the most, perhaps if, as young as I can remember. Uh, my parents are white and they adopted me as a three month old baby from South Korea. So there was no hiding that I was adopted. Um, and what's interesting, perhaps, you know, when I think back, um, even before I can remember, but certainly hearing stories and seeing pictures was that um, being adopted and being a, a mixed race family, you know, not being the same race as your parents actually was really normal to me in some ways. Um, first, obviously, as a kid, you, you only know what you know. So, it, you know, you don't even know that you're different in some ways. Um, but then my first best friend when I was a toddler, you know, were friends of my parents. And they, too, were a white family who adopted a South Korean girl who was around the same age. And so, um, you know, had a had a friend and a family that just looked like ours. And then I went on, you know, even into preschool and met another family who had adopted uh, a South Korean boy, and we became fast friends and very close with that family. And so, you know, up uh, right until kindergarten, uh, that's all I knew and, and didn't think about it much because that's how families look to me and my friends. Um, but then I think going into kindergarten, I remember was, was this moment of change because, you know, you're going into a much different setting. And even as a six-year-old, I can recall I think this was really the first time I encountered what I would consider maybe outright discrimination in kids um, making fun of how I looked. Uh, and, I, you know, it was just something I'd been fortunate to not really hear in, you know, my little preschool settings or in these kind of more sheltered environments, but it, it still stuck with me, obviously. Um, and it was something, you know, my parents needed to explain to me. And we had and my parents, especially my mother, to her credit, you know, took it upon herself to not educate maybe the entire school, but certainly I remember being in a classroom with my mom explaining to our kindergarten class what adoption was and why our family perhaps didn't look like theirs. And, um, you know, that was just really meaningful, I think, to know, like, you have a parent behind you and perhaps didn't grow up with that same personal experience as a kid. Um, but was willing to stand up for you and, and help educate others in the process. So I distinctly remember that as kind of one of these moments that uh, started to inform that I was different and that other people didn't know or weren't familiar, didn't have exposure to um, a life that looked like mine. Um, 
you know, short after that, it really, I, I thankful again, it kind of became a non-issue, you know, other kids knew me and my family and kids, I think, um, actually can be pretty resilient and, um, at the end of the day, a, adaptable and so both myself as well as a lot of friends and just peers just got used to it and again just became kind of a normal part of my life that I didn't think twice about um and I really wouldn't think twice about it again until again there was like this big change in my environment which was college and I the next moment was not as perhaps dramatic but I was kind of funny I remember my parents picking me up after that first semester of college after you know you make a bunch of new friends and uh, my friend said to me, you kind of forgot to tell us something. And I, I was like, what, what is it? And it was that I was adopted and that my parents, you know, don't look like me. And it was just kind of a funny moment, but it was this, again, it's crystallized in my mind as this time where I realized, oh, again, like my life, it is challenging ingrained assumptions um, when people see me. Um, and not necessarily in bad ways, but just that's the truth. It does, you, you can't assume a lot of things when you look at me um, about how or where, whatever, how I grew up and what I know. Um, and so that was another moment. And then um, I think more in the past decade, again, with Cornell has been another moment, you know, it didn't really matter to me. It didn't really have a role so much professionally per se, um, it, except that I, when I would mention I'm adopted, whether in individual or small or large group settings, even, um, I would have other people come up to me and, you know, other colleagues come up to me and show that they were adopted. And, and you just realize, um, you know, again, it's an identity that can't really easily be identified when you're out there as an independent adult. And so you do have to kind of, um, if I, I'll borrow from my next uh, element, you know, you have to come out, you have to tell people that piece. And so that was something I think that was, that's been, um, again, a through line, but the, that was the part that was, has been with me perhaps the longest that I really was very self-aware of and really understood, um, what that meant to me. Um, the, the second element, um, that I think about and how it informs me is, you know, being a gay man, um, and I think like so many in our community, even as a kid, you, you kind of feel different. Um, and perhaps even when you're seven, you just feel like maybe something's not the same. Um, and I, you know, I came out relatively early for a lot of um, people, I think my age, you know, I came out probably ninth or 10th grade. And again, very thankful that it was a relatively low key affair, uh, you know, had very supportive parents had very supportive friends. Like, I, I don't th think I lost one friend in that. And so recognize that's not the story for everyone when they go through that and um, aren't as fortunate. Um, but that that piece for me was, uh, again, maybe thankful, well, very much so thankfully, um, less, um, um, uh, less hurtful or painful. Um, it was just kind of a recognition of what had been there. Um, and there were certainly a couple jerks, um, you know, teenagers are what they are. And so, but it wasn't, I would say not, I wasn't often bullied or picked on um, and, and had an a environment. And, you, and, and so I think that informed how I thought about things going forward, because for me, that could just, again, really naturally be a piece of me. And it, 
it still is a piece where you do have to come out, obviously, and you don't, as all I think in our community understand, you don't, you don't come out once and it's done. You're, you just continually come out in every uh, setting, every new person, because again, um, it's not exactly something you're going, um, people can tell just by looking at you, let's say, right? It's something you have to confirm or disclose um, or, you know, and hopefully in a proud, strong way, but it is something that we all, uh, I think, learn about and experience just in, you know, professional and life settings is, is sharing, having to say exactly who we are um, as members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and so that's been something, but I think, again, knowing there was a supportive environment made me, um, you know, have that confidence. And I think later on, hopefully, you know, I've been able to be there for others because I know just how important it was to have people there uh, for me in those moments too. Um, and so then the third element, which of course is the element that everyone can see, right? So I have to tell people I'm adopted. They won't otherwise know unless they see my parents or see a photo. Um, uh, you have to tell people you're gay to, for them to know who you, you know, that that's that part of your life. Um, but the Asian thing you can tell by looking at me. Um, and, but this was the piece I had the longest personal challenge and journey with um and and it really took me just a really long time to understand that learn about it embrace it um and now be really really proud of it um and so you know you know again growing up as a as an adoptee you know middle class white suburban upstate new york um you know you're a kid you don't you don't you want to fit in, you want to have friends, you want to have fun and learn. And, and, and my parents were, again, very supportive. They gave me books, they tried to give me opportunities to learn about Korea. I think there were even summer camps for adoptees. I, I know um, others in my high school had gone to them. Um, but I just, I was a kid and I wanted to be with my friends. And this just wasn't a piece of me that I was tapping into much. Um, and so my parents, again, offered resources and opportunities, but I just, it just wasn't landing, you know, pretty much throughout high school um, and, and and college really. Like I, it just wasn't a piece of me. I really understood. I went to a college that didn't have a large Asian population uh, either. So they're just, I wasn't, I wasn't exposed to any different types of Asian cultures or I mean, frankly, even people, a lot of the Asian students in my high school were adopted Koreans. And so we weren't, you know, I wasn't seeing people reference cultural touch points or food or traditions. Um, we were all just, again, in kind of um, middle-class white suburbia and, um, you know, again, lovely and had a lot of benefits, but certainly wasn't a lot, didn't give a lot of opportunity either to really naturally tap into to this part of identity. Um, and, and I'd say two moments, um, they're really critical to me uh, finding this part of myself. Um, one was, it seems a little frivolous in hindsight, but it was one of my close friends. Well, actually, let me back up. Cornell really set the stage by letting me move to New York City in 2014. So I started with Cornell in 2012 and um, Ithaca, New York and the main campus, and then got this opportunity to move uh, to New York City where I'd always wanted to be. 
2014. And this was the job that uh, would eventually connect Molly and me not too long uh, thereafter. Um, but being in New York gave me all of that exposure to things I didn't have in Rochester, New York, or in college, or Ithaca even. Um, and that was meeting people from all kinds of backgrounds, um, meeting people from all kinds of Asian backgrounds, uh, learning about um, their, you know, these cultures and, and people and their stories about how they, you know, some had been born in the United States and some immigrated. And, and just for the first time really being um, around that um, socially was just eye-opening. It really was. And I always will say like, you know, uh, New York can make you a really, a, a much better person if you let it. And that's what I think about when I think about New York City is it, in this moment, was it, a, it set the stage for me to start to tap into this. So that was a really important point to just open my eyes, allow me to meet new people. Um, of course, now getting to the moment I said was a little frivolous. One of the people I met was, was is still one of my best friends, who's also an adopted Korean. Um, and one morning we were just like, of course, um, on Netflix and watched uh, a K-drama and then fell into YouTube. It were YouTubing K-pop. And of course that YouTube algorithm just keeps feeding you things. And so this was really like tapping into Korean culture. So we, my friends and I started getting into K-dramas and K-pop and, you know, that seems kind of superficial maybe, but it really is kind of the gateway into learning about uh, culture, right? Because all these things are are referencing uh, touch points. You learn about the history. And, and then once you take it off the TV and just the K-pop, you, you start to dig in and understand what these references they're making means, what the language sounds like, how the language works, how families, how friends work. Um, it was just really like what I remember fun. Um, but that was really how I, how I started learning about Korea and what it was. And, and then, um, Cornell, again, and this, this is why I'm so thankful for this experience at Cornell, really gave me a, a chance of a lifetime and for a work assignment did send me to Asia. Um, and I got to go to Korea for the first time since I was born. And I, on this part of my work I, or the trip, I, I just went alone. I wasn't with people and I just kind of ran around Seoul for a week and a few friends knew people and so I connected with them who connected me with other people and I really just had like the time of my life but um between all the fun things was were also just these really poignant moments of um I don't know just looking around and for the first time everywhere you look are people who look like you um and and there was there were some moments of um I'm not sure what you would call it of of loneliness or something because as an adoptee you know again you go back you you visit korea now you're in the place where you look like everybody um but now you don't speak the language and now you know you're still feeling kind of outsider even though now on the outside you look like everybody so there were some of those moments and i i know a lot of other people do experience that and and feel those and can relate about i don't know it is feeling like neither here nor there but I would say overall, it was it was a really amazing trip. And actually, um, one of the alumni who I've worked with as well for several years had been uh, splitting her time between kind of the New York area and, and Seoul. And so we grabbed dinner together. And I just remember her saying um, to me, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're adopted, you're, you're Korean by blood, and this will always be a home for you. And again, I know that's not um, 
necessarily the most prevalent welcoming attitude among Koreans vis-a-vis um, -vis adoptees all the time. But in that moment, it just, it really meant the world to me, right? And this was, um, again, someone with a, we had a professional relationship and everything. It wasn't that she knew me deeply personally, but it was just, you know, a moment of kindness between people in different countries. And I really, in that moment, felt like, okay, I can, I can have another home. And it, it's not disrespectful to the home I grew up in, but it is, it is like finding this piece of yourself um, again, that you had, I had ignored or, and I wasn't even really aware of. And, um, and, and since then, you know, I think that's just opened my mind, my heart to so many um, possibilities and different things. And, and I, and I went back the next year and I actually went to the city I was born from the, the following year, Busan. And that too was just a really important moment. And um, again, I went alone and I will highly endorse traveling internationally alone to places you don't speak the language because I think that also helped just really help me be in the moment and just recognize like how far you know I've come in life and and thinking uh, and understanding who I am and embracing it and so um that that was just a really meaningful moment and again what I love um is you know with respect to kind of wrapping up at Cornell is that Cornell was a part of this and it is it's been a such a special place to allow me to do this even as a staff member right I'm not a student and yet I think back and you know I talk about these experiences and these are experiences that are very translatable to I think how alumni talk about this place that gives opportunities that helps you find people who are important to you that helps you tap into new facets of who you are so um, that's been a that's been a really meaningful piece to me too. So, um, you know, so that's those are some of the th the three big things I think about. I thought about a lot when I think about what what are what tells my story. And um, it it's true. I think you know some of this about um, you know once you're once you are comfortable with who you are, um, which isn't to say you've reached some pinnacle. <laughs> um, you're always growing, but once you've really embrace some different things about yourself and, and started to dig into that, I think you're, you're ready to receive other people in your life. And so, you know, when I came back from that second Asia trip, and this was totally coincidental, but uh, went to um, this organization's holiday party, and this organization works with, um, or it does a lot of programming for adopted um, Asians uh, in, the, in New York City, it's called also known as and uh, I went there and um, met the man who's um, my partner for the past two and a half years. And he's also an adopted uh, Korean who grew up um, with, you know, with a white family in Connecticut. And so, uh, you know, I don't think much like I started this in saying, if we had this conversation five, even 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said very different things. And I probably wouldn't even tapped into this piece of me. I think if I hadn't done all that work, I don't think I would have been ready to really have this really meaningful, important relationship with, um, you know, someone I consider the love of my life. And, and so, you know, these story, you know, you can't predict these things. I certainly didn't have this planned out, um, but it's been uh, just an incredible experience um, to explore and learn. And I will say one other thing about, um, because Cornell is so much in my mind having wrapped up, but the experience of working, you know, Molly with you and actually other um, Asian, Asian American donors, 
um, also taught me a lot. Um, and I'll, I, this story is always important to me. One time um, I was meeting an alum for the first time and uh, this man was um, Chinese American and he uh, came in he's like, I'm so excited Cornell has like an Asian gift officer. Like, because I want to talk about what it means to have Asian representation at Cornell and then both in the student body, but faculty and leadership and staff. And he was so excited. And I didn't, and it was that in that moment, you learn, you know, by being you, you know, you can bring power and strength um, into these conversations that it's not a weakness that you have to overcome, but that's actually, again, a real asset um, to the workplace to have people who look, you know, of all kinds of backgrounds, because you need to allow for that kind of serendipity to happen. So again, I just, there are these moments that just really stick out for me and I've shared a few here, um, but they, they just, you know, whether I was six years old or, or, you know, um, you know, the past couple of years working in New York, it's, these moments stick with you and they really inform how you think about yourself um, in all kinds of ways. And then how you, you know, you work and manage relationships with others, whether it's your best friends or family or, you know, your partner or colleagues or people, um, you know, in my case, uh, alumni and donors to a university. Uh, that's really, it's, I think, understanding these pieces about myself has made me more effective in managing all of those different um, very important people and relationships in my own life. Ugh. So I'm so proud of you. I am so proud of you. A little bit speechless, I have to say. I'll gather myself. I, uh, first of all, kudos to your parents. Great. I, I hope to meet. I really hope to meet. Tell them Molly says a big hello and thank you. Thank you. And um, boy, when I, I've said this so, just, you know, so many times for folks, you know, we have to do the work, do the work. Um, and it can be painful and it can be confusing. And uh, but it, it it yields the riches that you've just shared to be really comfortable with who you are. And as you said, you're continuing to grow and, you know, be the, the new you in the new moment. Um, but I'm just so just grateful to you for sharing and, uh, and for also, you know, having your inner wisdom to be able to put it all together, Christopher, you know, cause I think a lot of folks can think like a lot of stuff's going on for me, but you know, you've given yourself the time and the pause to, to knit it together in a way that, that, that you can understand and then you can share with others. So gosh, I just, I just, you know, I'm thankful for you for so many things. And now, you know, add this one more huge thing. What, what an amazing journey. And, you know, you're just getting started. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it feel in all kinds of ways, it feels like, you know, you, you're always fresh, you're always learning. Um, but again, I, I just think about if you had asked me this, you know, eight years ago or something when we met, I just, I wasn't in the same space. Um, and I'll just always be thankful to people like yourself who, you know, and I think that's what's something to remember for everyone, right, is you are, you can always be learning if you're open to that. It doesn't have to be sitting in a classroom learning, but pay attention to, right, the people around you, um, because you can always just be picking up on these things, right? That alum I mentioned, he wasn't trying to teach me anything. In fact, he also assumed I just knew inherently what it meant to <laughs> know everything about an Asian culture. Um, but you're learning, you can really learn if you're open to it. And then I think on the flip side, right, always be aware that 
perhaps you're teaching people things um, without realizing it. And, and hopefully we're teaching things in the positive way. Um, but that's also, you know, people are, can absorb um, and really pay attention that way. Uh, you know, whether you're the student or teacher, I mean, often we're both. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's so much I could go back on. Let, let me just, I'm thinking, I'm really curious about the early working, okay, uh, adopted gay Asian. When you go into your first job, I, you know, presume people are always kind of testing, like, can I be, like, how much can I be of me? And do you recall being very mindful about that or because of your background? And I have to tell you, how many like adopted Korean in Rochester? I'm just like so overwhelmed. Their whole preschool life was like, look at all these great adopted Korean kids with white parents. I mean, that is just such a gift to have had that security early on because I had no idea. Um, you know, I always say in Rochester, I, we had the one black, one Korean, one Chinese family in our <laughs> elementary experience. That was it. You know, yeah. like we were, that was the United Colors of Benetton. Um, so you know, I, I'm, I, I'm wondering, do you remember being super, um, guarded's the wrong word, you know, but I, I'm just, just, just helping. Cause I think people think about it. You get to work and like, huh, can I, can I let it rip and be me? How much can I let it go? Um, yeah, I, I, well, when I, the answer is no, <laughs> when I started and I think about like, at, uh, when I started college and I, I did have one job one worked at one place before Cornell for a couple of years. So when I started there and then when I started Cornell um, and even, you know, the first maybe half decade of Cornell, I, I can be a, just a naturally more guarded person, I think. Um, so it's not really a reflection of the people around me. Um, but it is just, I was always holding my cards close to my chest. They're always, compartmentalized right like work is work over here that's why I am at work and this is why I'm in life and this is you know and uh the past few years maybe five years especially um have broken down those walls and I think um again learning from others but um as I've had opportunities to grow and manage and lead at Cornell um one of the things that's made, again, I think me, but I think has made me a better person was the opportunities Cornell's given me professionally to um, be someone's manager, to lead it and to create and lead and grow a team. And for me, that was a mo those moments were when I realized I was really impacting someone else's life. Like we all know uh, a boss for better or worse can very much impact how you're day, week, life, how you view it, right? They're, they're a big, they're a big relationship uh, to you. And I took that responsibility very seriously uh, as, and, and, you know, started with like one person and you, know, you grow uh, the, the kind of the scale of the team you're entrusted with. Um, but every person I just took really seriously that I'm impacting their life in some way. And they're, you know, hopefully looking up to me and hopefully I can be um, something to them. But because we were trying to be thoughtful and bringing on a, a team that represents all kinds of diversity, I just realized I need to be lean into sharing who I am, uh, being vulnerable, letting people know, you know, this is me, um, because I that will, I think, make or create trust uh, create vulnerability, uh, let people know that it's okay to be them. So 
I, I would say like my decisions to be more out at work across all of these elements um, was really, if not directly spurred, certainly enhanced a lot by the responsibility I felt to others. And then, um, you know, we would do different kind of conversations like this at work um, in different formats. And if I would just, you know, didn't, even if I just inadvertently, oh, my boyfriend in front of 300 people, right? It's saying to people, okay, there's other people in this organization who've grown and are gay and it's fine, right? Um, and, and sometimes I've gotten very kind notes from colleagues to say like, you know, I, I'm glad you're here. And that's, that's very kind of them. And, um, but you just realize, you know, if you have a voice, if you have even just a, a small voice in an organization, you have some opportunity to represent and promote that um, kind of environment, like, that's, that's your responsibility. So again, I think that's what's changed my mindset was really realizing, okay, it's, it's not a, just about me, because my natural instinct, if not pushed, would probably be to compartmentalize. Um, but when there are other people's, um, you know, feelings of equity and inclusion and belonging on the table, and that I could maybe play a small role, that's when I wanted to say, or wanted to make sure I was more present in, in those settings. Uh, I love it. I appreciate you going against what might be your uh, innate state. And one, recognizing the privilege you have, and then to actually use your voice um, to help others use theirs. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole ethos mm -hmm. of this program. And what I've stood for was say it skillfully. And that notion, you know, comes from you being grounded in yourself. Um, and it, which is not to say we all think we're fabulous, but to be able to appreciate the highlights and the lowlights and ourselves in a 360 way. Mm -hmm. And when people see you doing that, right, that, that it gives them permission to be them. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, it, that does. I hope, but I, and I think the other piece, and I hope this is, so this is something I've been thinking about too, is, okay, so you have leaders, hopefully in your organization that look or are different, all, you know, all kinds of different, right? Um, and, and then how are we raising others, right? Because if there's just one and we go, oh, that's great. That's a, you know, you know, he's great. He did something, he represents these things, but where, you know, we got to make sure that everyone else not just can recognize themselves in that, but then has those resources, has, like you said, the voices lifting them up um, so that we don't, we're not doing this alone. Yeah, no, the optics matter. And to be like the token, you know, I can't, tell you the number of people I've talked to who feel like they're the token black person or the token Asian person or mm -hmm. the token woman. And, you know, it gets really old. So the idea <laughs> is, can we really create that United Colors of Benetton notion, which is, you know, it's just everybody has a chance to be who they are and um, to, to flourish. And, you know, folks have heard me say, when you have a diversity in the broadest sense of people, places, ideas, and experiences, when you have that, it takes a higher a relationship capability of each individual. Otherwise, it's kind of a train wreck, right? Because people can't hear each other. They they think it only should be done one way. And those those teams are not fun. Mm -hmm. um, so to have, you know, in that case, you're better off with a homogeneous team or you really won't get anything <laughs> done. So I think it really is imperative um, to have, you know, ideally it starts at the top. I think it does. But I want to encourage folks listening that you look at, uh, you know, listen to Chris Christopher's journey and any one of us can be that change you want to see in the world. And it matters because people notice. 
Um, can you share a little bit? I can imagine that all the leaders that you've had professionally have been as open. Did you have any folks that you felt were, you know, particularly closed-minded or you couldn't quite get to? And how did how did you handle that challenge? Hmm. I I can't really. I mean, I again. I, I've been fortunate, and I think I'm also one of those people. I don't resilience, not really the right word, but um, I, sometimes I, you know, what I, this is horrible. Sometimes I think my ego protects me from like individually toxic people around the workplace, be they leaders, managers, or just or colleagues or anyone else, um, and it allows me to mentally maybe forget some of those things, but I would say, so let me answer it this way. I think rather than say like, there's this one person or this one person, I would say a challenge I see um, in leadership in all kinds of organizations, but I've certainly seen it um, firsthand is more and more people, you know, recognize the value of a diverse, equitable, inclusive environment. So there's step one. That's that's good. Um, but I think there's a real frustration in understanding actually just how much work it takes to do this. And, and the diversity piece, right, creating a diverse workforce and team is hard. But I keep telling people, if you think that's hard, like the equity, inclusion, and belonging pieces, the things that follow that and that acronym or that order, um, I've seen that's where people that's where the biggest challenge, that's where the frustrations from leaders I, I see come through because those aren't solved by policies. I mean, diversity is not even, but there, you know, we, we do things around hiring and uh, onboarding and all those things, but the, how do you, how are you equitable, inclusive and belonging? I mean, that's culture. That is so much bigger than policy. And I, I see managers who are so used to saying, I'm going to set a policy or create a rule or do this and resolve it. Right. And not always for these issues, but I mean, any operational issue, right. You create the policy, it's implemented, it's fixed. Right. Um, but this is about culture and that can't be fixed with a policy and it can't be fixed with a once a year training, it, you know, it, it can't, it's something we need to be practicing every day. And you're probably never getting to a place of mastery and perfection going check, we created the inclusive environment. It's you have to really care for that. It's always calibrating. It's always changing. Um, you know, we as a society and organizations and cultures, hopefully are learning more about how to do these things. But I just see that as a big challenge is we sometimes don't have the patience because we want, and look, I, I, I'm a results quantitative driven person. So I get that side. I have empathy for the leadership on that, but these, the culture piece is just, it's not a policy. It's really, it's practice. It's, it's every day you invest in it. And you know, that, that can be frustrating. So I think that's what I've seen as a common challenge in the workplace is just, we want to solve it. We want to solve it now, but this is just not a solvable now challenge for us. Yeah. The, the wisest, probably the wisest words ever I've heard on this topic because you, you nailed it period. And it is about people and what we think and how we feel and how we treat each other. And as it is a caring 
is by caring for each other. It's about cultivating it day in, day out, every hour of the day and realizing that it's not a static thing. It's dynamic based on who we are. So, you know, I, I uh, appreciate your putting out there. And I think with leaders like you and I encourage folks to just take those words that Christopher pulled together and just start to think about them and use them. And I think that that um, is a, is a real opportunity. I would just add with that. I think it's, it can be easy to, to think about the, us versus them, me versus whomever. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think for folks to realize that we really are more similar at our core than not mm-hmm. that and you know, listeners have heard me say ad nauseum, you know, we're all part of the problem and we're all mm-hmm. part of the solution you know, and not necessarily equally, but all of us contribute to this thing that is our culture, right? And so for folks say, well, you know, our culture is da 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 like, okay, well, do you want it to be that way? Or because you could make it different, (laughs) right? Um, And it just, if I could just add, I I couldn't agree more. And I, but but I think one thing for people who do find themselves in positions of leadership or management, um, one piece of advice I got from someone and then a piece together vis-a-vis this conversation is um, one person who had grown with an organization and got into really a senior level and I asked her what she had learned or what were some big takeaways. And she had said, you know, people don't tell you things as a leader, right? They're, they're scared or they don't think it's their place. And so if something's wrong, you're almost the last to hear about it. And, and so she had said, you have to really compensate for that you have to recognize that that's probably going to be true but you you can't just sit on that and go well no one's going to tell me things and I'll just make decisions so you know she had talked about leaning into finding ways to have all kinds of ways for people to communicate with you and then creating an environment where at least people can advocate for each other and that's what I've seen on the team I was um you know for uh just most recently a part of at Cornell was you know, sometimes people wouldn't always tell me things directly about what might be um, on their minds in a, in a more challenging way, but the team would advocate for each other and, and they would stand up for when they saw something um, that they didn't think was quite right or where we could do better. And I think that's really important um, for leaders, right, is to create, have that space where people can can be comfortable telling you things, even if it's on behalf of others, um, because it's just not, you know, we, we all work in a hierarchy and it just feels unnatural to be like, hey, I think we're, you know, doing X, Y, Z wrong. And so the more you can um, allow for that, you know, the better you are because, and, and as a leader and manager, like, you know, surprises are not great. And so like, that also helps just ward against some surprises is when people are comfortable telling you and, and, you know, you have to take that and reflect on it, but the pathways there are really important to have. I love that. That's superb advice. I'll add for folks as leaders, it's it's easy to say, well, they should tell me and I'm making the space and I want to hear it and they know it. And to your point, Christopher, sometimes they're just not going to, even though they know they could and they know they should and they know you want it. And so to not make anyone bad or wrong and to create this, um, uh, potpourri of ways that the information gets out, right? That we somehow hear all voices is what's mm-hmm. most important. And when we have the transparency, you know, we can do something with it. And I, I love to quote Alan Mulally, you know, who said, look, at you, we can't, I can't manage a secret. I've got to know. So yeah, that, you know, that's, I, that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that 
for the leader folks who are out there, you have to say it like all the time. Just because you said it, you know, two weeks ago, people don't remember and they don't, they, they're not really sure. So you have to continually find ways to lean in. And you want to, Ellen talks very vividly about a, a time where he got the first piece of bad news and he just started clapping. He started clapping. Yay, I've got bad news. So you want to celebrate, you know, that people are willing to share it because then, you know, you can do something about it and help. Them yes, yeah, I, I agree. That's it's again, continually telling people and then celebrating when you get told, right? And you, you don't need to out who told you bad news, but saying this is great. And and I, you know, I've, I've always asked my team for grace on the other side to say, um, you can bring me problems if you don't have solutions. I, I don't really like the phrase of don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Bring the problem. Um, the The flip side is just don't expect me to be able to solve everything. Like I'm also human. So if you can highlight something that's wrong or challenging um, and you can be a thought partner to help solve it and then maybe bring others to the table. That's what like, that's how we push forward. You know, it can't just be, Hey boss, solve this. Right. It has to be, let's, let's do this together because you probably don't want me or anyone else unilaterally solving something as um, tricky as some of these issues. Oh my God. That's another, we need that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that is genius. That's absolutely genius. Um, on the topic of being Asian, and, and I appreciate your wrestling with it. Um, talk, you know, talk to us about what you see with Asians. What you think um, the Asian community could be doing? I'm welcoming any thoughts. I've had some friends who have said, "Look, I have a lot of Asian friends, and they're not kind of willing to talk about it, what it's like, and they don't kind of want to go there." Um, a lot of us may think that there could be great to have more Asians in senior leadership, et cetera. So any thoughts? One is we need to always remember to strengthen our ties and how we're connecting with each other. I, you see some of the horrible events that have happened in the past couple years, especially with anti-Asian violence and other things. And there are these moments where you, you, whether people are dog whistling or outright saying and trying to pit minority communities against each other, right? And so I think remembering to combat that and be there for, you know, be there for your colleagues across, you know, you, even if they're not Asian, right, we should be there for them and strengthen them so that because that way they hopefully are there for us, right? And we are truly like, when you create a fabric, a network of people who have that uh, you know, a shared reality or understanding of what each other's are going through, um, more empathy. Uh, it, it makes it, you you all add, do end up stronger because you have voices when you are, when you're challenged or you're hurt or something is really bad for you, you have voices and people who are strong for you in those moments. So I think talking about it and talking about all kinds of challenges with all kinds of people really is helpful. Um, I think the other is not being afraid to ask. Um, now, I have a job where as a fundraiser for universities, the job is to ask for gifts. Um, uh, it thoughtfully, uh, you know, we're not, we don't call you up at 5 p.m. and ask you for $20. We view it as a partnership, but we do ask. And I think that's got that just natural component of my job externally and asking um, has made me in a career management sense better too, because I'm okay asking. I think about it as, and I've 
and when I've um, counseled other colleagues, when they were trying to think about a raise or a promotion and bringing that to their managers and leaders, I've said, you ask a lot for Cornell, it's okay to ask of Cornell. Um, and I think you're a high performer and you're being diligent and you've put in the time and performance, you know, we need to think about how we are standing up for ourselves and making that ask. But I'd really like to see people be really empowered um, on the ask, on negotiation. I, I don't know that this is specifically Asian. We met the alum of Cornell who wrote the, the book um, around, I think it was called Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling. And it was about Asians in leadership. Um, and again, kind of being pigeonholed because of stereotypes about being quiet and not rocking the bow. Um, and, and so being confident and putting ourselves out there in the job we're in, but then making asks when we want different or more, we just, we and, and no one I don't, I should feel guilty or held back by that. Um, and the confidence piece is just really important. And the more we can share with each other how we did it, um, how we negotiated, how we, you know, overcame challenges at work, it was, it's just really important. You know, we can't hide those stories. Um, because again, that's how we learn um, most from each other. And then I think once we get into leadership, and this is where I've also seen challenges, when Asians or others do step into leadership is to remember, you know, if you are that um, person who's paving the way, maybe you are the first Asian or Asian American or person of color in leadership at an organization. Um, right now, people probably will celebrate you and say, that's so great we have that person. But the next step needs to constantly be in how are we bringing others? I, you know, I, no one wants to be alone at that table or we shouldn't want to be alone. And, um, and so, you know, investing in ways to make it maybe just that much easier for the next, the people who are coming um, after you or, or slightly with you, um, I, you know, just because it may have been hard for you, uh, that should motivate us more to say, to say, let's, let's find ways to really support people. Like I think of it as we're trying to lift up and accelerate people, not say, well, I had it tough and figured it out and you should figure it out too. Like that attitude, I don't think is the most helpful. I think we have to say, Ooh, I had some things that were tough. Um, and let me think about how we're going to do this differently. Um, just a story from my Cornell experience was, you know, uh, I, as a, when I started as a gift officer, um, you know, the, we didn't have a lot of formal training. We were kind of learning by ourselves. Some of us got together and would talk about things. But I just thought like, man, if we had actually just invested, if Cornell had invested in more training on a sustained basis, maybe we could have been even better sooner. And so when we built our team recently, I made that conscious decision to make that investment, build a training program that where we invest in professional development skills, not not just once a year at a conference or once a year at an all staff meeting, but every single week we're training. And that has made, uh, you know, the latest um, crop of amazing gift officers uh, at Cornell. Um, I mean, they're way better than I was when I started. And, you know, again, I just like to, I think that's the lesson I'll carry with me too, is just, you know, just because it was hard for you, that should be the opportunity you think about when you're in any kind of leadership or of any opportunity. How are we breaking down that wall so that other people's climb can be perhaps a, a little better for everyone? Uh, 
So bravo, bravo, bravo. Well, people have to pay their dues, pay their dues. No. In some cases, yes, but really what I heard you say is pave the way, pave the way, right? Pave the and- way. That's such a, oh, I love that. Yeah, forget pay your dues, let's pave the way, you know? Yeah. And and you have to, you know, again, I don't want to, you have to work for it, you have to deliver, right? It's not about not holding, um, not valuing excellence, but it is about saying like, let's create an environment that really encourages excellence rather than go, rather than almost challenges, like in a really kind of mean way to do excellence. It's like, well, here's all the barriers, good luck. And whoever gets through wins. Like that's just so demoralizing and not a place we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to just chime into something you said earlier about stereotypes, Um, the overcoming stereotypes. I was blown away by you because so just share again, you know, here you're like, I, I might be Asian, but I was raised white, right? So I didn't <laughs> think I shouldn't be doing it. So say a little bit more about that for listeners. Sure. And, and that, thank you for bringing that up, Molly, because I also have thought about that is perhaps help, helpful in its own odd, bad way. I don't know. Um, like having these blinders on where I almost just thought of myself and would operate maybe with the stereotypical confidence of just like a middle-class white kid, right? My parents raised me like that and really ingrained in me that lesson of, you know, you can do anything you want to do. And I just kind of took that to heart. And so that gave me a little confidence and, or, you know, maybe too much some days about uh, operating in the workplace. But, you know, again, I, and you have to temper it. You don't want to be the egomaniac at work or anywhere, but sometimes a little ego is like, a protective force. Um, and I see this with other people where, you know, they're still, they're growing their confidence to a stronger level. And, you know, they think of it like they used to watch X-Men as a kid and like superpowers and you learn about your superpowers and you have to grow them. And, um, you know, having just the right amount of confidence so that you don't give others the power to make you feel diminished, uh, you know, in really significant ways. Um, is something I think we should all have, not just middle and upper class white kids, right? We all should know how to step back and perhaps make the choice that that person is being a jerk to me. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm going to choose that that's not, you know, that's on them. That, that, that whatever they're going through is something, you know, but I'm not going to go home and let that diminish how I feel. Um, about myself. Like, I understand what values I'm bringing, what strengths I'm bringing. I understand what I have to work on, right? We're, again, like you say, we're not perfect. It's not really about that, but it is just trying to find your your strength. And, you know, like one of the things we train as a team as a value is um, in working with alumni and working for Cornell is, you know, be bold, you know, don't operate from a, posi- a position of fear. When people do that, you're not, you're not playing to win or for that excellence. You're not doing your best. Um, you're just trying not to mess up. And, and that's a really, again, not great place to be. But again, I think growing up with the blinders of like, oh, am I middle-class white kid? Um, gave me just some of those elements um, that I think we, again, we want everyone to have that. We want everyone to be able to operate with, the appropriate amount of self-confidence and strength in all these situations. Um, and then again, we, you want to cultivate relationships and networks. So when those are challenged, there's someone reminding you of your strength um, and, 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 or being strong for you in that moment until you, 
you kind of regain that. So I, I, that's a little bit of my rambling on I'm maybe thinking about how how those that perspective influenced um, how I operate today. Spectacular. Okay, sadly, I have to wrap. So let me ask you, uh, Christopher, as we're wrapping this big chap, what's most fulfilling about what you do work-wise? Uh, working both at Cornell and then the role I'm about to take on at Stanford will be, um, you know, managing teams, but also working with alumni like Molly. Um, and both things to me are about helping people unlock their value and potential. And so when I work with alumni, a lot of times um, they are people like you said, Molly, at the top of you know, I'd fallen off the radar. I wasn't as engaged. I'd work with a, I have worked with a ton of alumni who never gave and never stepped foot on campus in 30 years. Um, and, and often hadn't made substantial gifts, um, though they perhaps were financially able to do so. And so working with them and showing them, you know, if you do this, if you fund this scholarship or this thing, like, here's what it does for, um, you know, these students or the research or the university. Um, and it just shows people something they never knew they were capable of doing. And then in the being able to manage people, again, I take that very seriously. And um, I used to get really excited about gifts that I worked on. And now the gifts I get most excited about are my teams. And because I work with, again, a lot of people who are doing this for the first time. And so they get to go work with alumni and they're raising you know, their first six figure gift for Cornell. And I, I'm just so excited because it's a breakthrough moment, right? They've achieved a new level of success and unlocking that potential and value and, and showing them what they're capable of. And I mean, that's just the through line for me. Um, I think that's just the one of the best things about this work. I imagine, um, you know, that's why people like love teaching, right? Because you, you see, I don't know, you see a culture of learning and you see people find out how to do something new that they weren't sure they were capable of, or they didn't even think about. And that's, it's just a, it's always a magic moment. I love it. I love it. Very, very last question. Christopher, what was it like for you today to share your journey? Um, just, I, it's so special. And I, again, thank you because this was, again, just the right timing. I would have given much less thoughtful answers again, many years ago. And it comes at just this right time of having wrapped up um, at Cornell and um, excited about Stanford, but I, but it, it's just a moment to say like, here's this cha true chapter in my life, 10 years at a place of, um, and learns, been able to learn so much and grow with people and make these relationships. Um, and so getting able to just reflect on it with you and, you know, we, any chance um, we have to tell our story is a really special one. Um, but this timing and doing it with you who I've known for so many years and we've worked through challenges and we, you know, this is, it. it's just, I guess that the word is special. You are special, my friend. You have shown how our upbringing can serve to help us to bring ourselves up despite whatever societal thinking. I am beyond happy. I am so proud of you, Christopher. I'm always cheering for you. You are part of the solution, helping all to be safe, seen, and heard, and our true and very, very best selves. Uh, you take good care, my friend. I'm always here for you, and I look forward to seeing you again before long. Thank you so much, Molly.
Ah, folks, uh, my thought for the week, and I have three of them, uh, relationships take work. And boy, Christopher's gems, please bring problems even if you don't have the solution. And lastly, by being you, you bring power and strength to others. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Christopher's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.